There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective. I'm Mark and I'm here to introduce today's episode, an interview with the co-editor of and excerpts from the new Routledge Handbook of Ecocultural Identity an essential resource for scholars, teachers, students, protectors, and practitioners interested in ecological and sociocultural regeneration. This interview was conducted by one of my favorite creators, a personal mentor, and someone who celebrated a birthday this week. So happy birthday from the Climactic Collective, Gretchen Miller. Hello there, this is Climactic. I'm Gretchen Miller and it is my great pleasure to be talking with Associate Professor of Environment and Society at UNSW, Tema Milstein. We're sitting here on a sublime Sydney day after a week or two of thorough deluge, deluge which broke all sorts of records, following from a year of plague and a previous summer of bushfires. We're on the headland of South Coogee in Sydney, and this is the unceded land of the Bidjigal and Gadigal people of Eora Nation, to whose elders, past, present and future, we pay our respects and offer our gratitude. And you'll hear with us the sounds of this place, given voice through this interview, the breeze, the oceans, the animals and the birds. We're looking out over the ocean, grateful for the blue sky, and we're discussing the book It's a tome, really. It's enormous. It's thick and heavy and fabulous uh, that Tema and her co-editor, Jose Castro Sotomayor, brought out last year. It's called The Routledge Handbook of Ecocultural Identity. It's a comprehensive exploration covering so many things ecocultural, how to find it, form it, understand it, politicise it, share it, transform it and survive and thrive through being ecocultural beings. Tem has selected three excerpts which we'll use to ground our discussion and Mark Spencer, Climactic founder, is going to read bits of them for us as we go. And Mark, let's start at the beginning with a grab from the introduction which really sets out the framing of the book. We humans are cultural and ecological beings. This doesn't make us unique as a species. Myriad other beings, from orcas to elephants, are cultural and ecological too. Yet perhaps for an increasing majority of us humans, it seems as if our ecological selves have become steadily less accessible. The lack of earthly self-awareness in an increasingly human-centered world is reflected in the invisibility and deniability we assign to our environmental interlinkages, impacts, and interdependencies. And this lack of wakefulness is reified and the largely unabated extractive and destructive orientation that powerful interests and the majority of governments maintain towards the planet. The absence of ecological palpability also has been evident in much social activism, which often has emphasized sociocultural identity formations such as race, gender, sexuality, and class, 
yet largely disregards interrelated, more-than-human dimensions, environmental justice movements being among the clear exceptions. Equally in scholarship, research overwhelmingly has articulated identity as shaping and being shaped by human society, but rarely as shaping and being shaped by the more-than-human world. Indeed, identity, representation, difference, contingency, and power can be understood as pre-ecological concepts, notions emerging from societies and scholarships that predominantly have ignored or denigrated extra-human relations, knowledges, and practices. Indeed, all of us, each and every one, are always participants in crisscrossing socio-cultural and ecological webs of life, whether consciously or not. It is the growing majority of humanity's obliviousness and even active denial of our interrelated socio-cultural and ecological constitutions and conditions that has us where we are today, in the midst of unfolding anthropogenic, biospheric catastrophe. That first statement is such a clear one. We are cultural and ecological beings. We're those things, and some other things as well, maybe less flattering. But what that sentence does is jam together two ways of being that have been previously set apart from one another. The history of humanity from, goodness, I don't know when, but at least the Middle Ages, has been about differentiating humans from ecology. In fact, it began with Descartes' mind-body split, didn't it, and variations of the same throughout the centuries, which kind of have led us to the human exceptionalism that's found us in a bit of a sorry state. Lonely, high in a tower, isolated from the earth and the sea. Well, some of us, not all of us, of course. Tema, can you talk to those various movements that see the ecological and the cultural separated before we go on to talk about bringing those things together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is um, that separation, right, that humans separate from nature is a core premise of Western culture and westernized culture, right? Because we need to, we know, we need to understand that dominant premises, dominant core ways of understanding the world, dominant knowledges from, that emanated from the West, they were brought forth through colonization, through now globalization, right? And so, and, and different structures of economics and, and the systems and institutions that bind them. And so we're now very much, all of us living whether we reject it or not, with this core understanding that humans are somehow not nature, that we're separate from environment. And that when we say, quote unquote, the environment, that humans somehow are not the environment, that it's a backdrop or a stage or um, something that surrounds us, but that we're not actually a, an elemental part of. Mm. Um, so that we could talk about that as, as the binary at the core of most of our identities, yeah. Right. So we place ourselves, the human, as intellectual, as mind, and the earth as body, which we really want to have nothing to do with, apparently. You know, that's led us to the situation we're in for women, for example. You know, we're just suspicious of the body, the bleeding, earthy body. That's right. I mean, it intersects with a lot of the other isms, because we could think of the nature culture or the or the nature human binary as anthropocentrism or human centeredness or human exceptionalism but that 
anthropocentrism, if we, if we use the term anthropocentrism, which isn't something many of us are very familiar with as a term, but it, it needs to be. If we understand anthropocentrism as intricately related with racism, colonialism, sexism, it goes on and on, right? Uh, it's, it's all this power over dynamic instead of power with. So when you have a binary, when you have these two things that are separate in these binaries, there's hierarchy within that binary, right? There's always one thing that's kind of the right thing, the standard thing, the thing that's valued. And then the thing on the other side of the binary is the thing that's devalued. And we can see that with all the other isms. And so they're all intricately intertwined, actually. And, And the argument has been for some time is we have to pull them all apart at the same time. Right? Yeah. You can't just pull one apart. They all, they are all, there's knots in there that have to be undone. Yeah, all of them. Okay, so we are cultural and ecological beings. So that is an absolute first up, you know, straight off the bat challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So ecocultural identity is not a normative term, which means it's not a term that's, oh, we all need to be ecocultural. The idea, the idea behind this book and the the many authors that contribute to it, and the many different places we look around the world, is that every identity is always eco-cultural. Every single, any of us, you know, we're, we're sitting on a pathway, people are walking by, people are flying, not as many, but some are flying over, and living around and development is happening, and all of these human actions are informed by these identities that we carry, our, our kind of understanding of who we are and how we relate to each other. And all of those relationships, all of those understandings of self are ecological. It's just that in the dominant ways of being, the dominant life ways, we've developed uh, a blindness to the ecological aspects. And, And hence, our actions are ecologically blind. This book aims to point out all the ways that we are in fact cultural and ecological beings. That's the purpose. That's right. Looking at so many different peoples and places, right? So all the way from what you might consider really right-wing, like uh, evangelical Christians in the United States or ranchers to people who are trying to find spiritual, ecologically spiritual paths who are not indigenous but are taking indigenous lessons to people who are doing wild tending in the West to people who are canal dwellers and look down upon in Bangkok to people who are their only option in living in Ghana is to mine illegally in order to just keep food on the table. I can go on and on. There's lots and lots of examples. But the idea is let's look at as many different peoples and places as possible to start to tease out how is the culture always intimately interacting with um, the natural. And you know, if we look around ourselves, we begin to realize we're actually not the only animals to have culture. Like even this place, which is very popular with people walking their dogs, there's a culture of this spot where people and animals come to run around and be together, actually. And I would sort of hold that, he, that, that a dog has a culture. A dog has a way of being in the world that is repeated and references itself and its place and the nature of itself. So we're not the only animals to have culture. Really, there's 
kind of little unique about us except you know I, I, I sort of hate to say it but our capacity for destruction and violence um, as modes of being but I wonder if you could speak a little then to the cultural ways of other beings that you've been involved in in your life work and your research can you set us amongst our companions as cultural beings that's a great question i mean i i love that you start with a question from where we are right now on this pathway between the ocean and the land we're in a kind of a a green belt this parkway but you can see all the big homes and apartment buildings that have been built up behind us but then in front of us it's the pacific for you know thousands of miles um so we're in this liminal space right we're in that kind of space in between and those are really fruitful spaces for interaction. As you pointed out, it's where many species come together to be together. And I I think one of our mistakes all along, I mean, along with this binary between humans and nature, is that we tend, within the dominant cultural constructs, to separate out every species' experience as if they're not related, especially our own from the other species, right? But if we start to understand culture as interspecies cultures, right? All these integrations, integrated cultures, um, we start to see much more of the truth, right, that we're living. But in terms of one species I'm really familiar with are orcas um, or killer whales. Um, I've done research around killer whales or orcas for over a decade, and they're extremely, very obviously cultural, right? First of all, they're the only true matriarchal mammal that we know of, So the matriarchs lead their pod until they die. And the matriarchs live, we know, past 100 years old. Their children never leave them. That's part of the culture. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Sons and daughters stick around forever. Um, They just leave for a few minutes to, you know, carry on with others um, and make more of the species. But otherwise, um, they stay with mom. And and they have dialects. So um, in the southern resident killer whales, where I've been doing most of my research around orcas, it's... It's an endangered group of orcas, um, very endangered. They're the first that were also captured for our marine parks. So thinking of integrated cultures, right, a huge impact on them has been captures that didn't end until the 1970s. That what continues on is our our pollution, our non-point and point pollution, and our over-trafficking of the oceans. So they're being impacted in that way. And so they're a very small, I don't know what the current number is, um, maybe in the 70s. But even within that small number, there's three different matriarchal pods, each of which has its own dialect, its own way of speaking that you can identify if you listen to them very often. So there's another cultural aspect is dialects, even within small populations. And another one that's really amazing about the orcas is they have a greeting ceremony. So when the pods have been apart for some time, even just for a short time, but you know, like a day or two, they'll line up as they see each other coming, they'll line up pectoral fin to pectoral fin and slow down stop and just be breathing in space with, with a big space in between them and then when it's time in their culture in this ritual they start to swim towards each other they approach each other and then they come and they intermingle and they slide their bodies against each other and they say hello and they it's a joyous joyful jumping around beautiful time so that's just a, a few examples of one species that's large easy to see, easy to be enthralled with, you know, one of the charismatic megafauna, and, and that's quite well studied, right? But I mean, all species have cultures, right? All species have ways of being, life ways, um, ways of understanding the world, ways of interacting with the world. And it's the dominant culture's hubris that we ignore that entirely. In that introduction, you write about wakefulness 
the lack of it in the corridors of power, but also distressingly, really, in our social activism, which still centres humans and puts the more than human on the fringes. I wonder what are ways that social activists can be encouraged to incorporate the more than human. I mean, it is happening, as you say, but really only in the environmental justice movements. How can these movements be more aligned to each other to unknot the isms and see the connections between them? Yeah. I mean, this is right. Identity is so important right now, right? In politics and social movements, in trying to improve the state of the world for so, so many who have been marginalized and oppressed, killed for how they look or how, how they act. So, um, right. So how do we bring in and how do we see the ecological in all of these situations and conditions? I mean, one movement that has been doing really well at that has been the environmental justice movement, which is global in stature, right? So it's, it's a way of seeing how various uh, oppressions are very much not just social, but always environmental in various ways, whether it's being targeted for, you know, big toxic dumps or having transport hubs, polluting transport hubs put right in the middle of your communities. All these places where if you have less voice, you're more likely to also be those who are targeted. And that's at a global global scale as well, right? So environmental justice has done really well in terms of bringing those aspects of reality together and understanding them as never apart. A chapter in our book that puts forth a, another, an additional way of doing this is one specifically about the human, the, the animals, and specifically looking at what are some, and I'm going to have to look, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. sure. Tim is lifting up the great heavy hardback book and having a quick squeeze. So there are 28 chapters, and it's about a 500, over a 500-page book. So um, <laughs> this is by Carrie Freeman, who um, is very active regarding animal rights and is a great environmental communication scholar. This is a, a chapter she has in the book, and she also has just put out a, her own book on this as well. But what she does is she looks at what are the organizing frameworks of social movement, global social movement. She looks at the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Animal Rights, Principles of Environmental Justice, the Earth Charter, the UN World Charter for Nature, and she says, okay, what what are the core tenets of each of these, and how can they all, including the environmental ones, bring in more than human animals? like non-human animal voices as well. So it's both how do we bring ecologies into human rights, but also how do we bring in very specifically other species as well. That's one example, right, is using these frameworks of rights that are being listened to in policymaking and making sure, I mean, there's, there's also a whole um, nature rights movement in the legal system. Yes, right? so we're really using the tools of the Anthropocene yeah. to push back for the more than human. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, using the tools that exist right now, knowing that they're imperfect, but it's what we have for now. Yeah. yeah. Your point really, as eco-cultural beings and as being a part of the more than human, you know, being human in the more than human, is that we really are a part of the web 
of ecology. You know, we're part of, we're, we're just embedded. We, we cannot be separate. And in fact, as we've seen this year, we actually can't afford to pretend otherwise. We've had, you know, the powerful impacts of the micro, a virus, to the powerful impacts of the macro, our weather systems. We're utterly swimming in amongst it. Why do we find it so hard to see that embeddedness and how we're shaped by it? Why do we persist in the separation I can't help, you know, as an audio person, I can't help feeling it's because the eye dominates everything. It dominates our media. It dominates everything that we do. We approach the world using our eyes unless we are unsighted, in which, and, and perhaps we've got an awful lot to learn um, from those who don't see in the traditional way. Um, but for me as a radio maker... Like, I feel embedded when I'm listening. That's what embeds me in the world, you know, because that's when, I, that's when the sound enters my ears. It sort of, it gets into that labyrinth, which is the ear canal and, and, and speaks to me. Whereas my eyes feel like a flat screen, you know? Mm, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. When you said I, at first I thought you were meaning I as in the letter I, as in yeah. self-focus, which I think, I think, because I think it's that's those, both of those things, right, are feeding into it. It's that vision centricity that that we are really privileging our this one sense which and that those eyes right are in the front so it also creates a frontal orientation right so which a is a forward bit, momentum constant yes that's momentum. right forward momentum and also kind of passive kind of observant instead of you know embedded within so i mean there is this kind of physiology that mm. we all have and and so and we objectify using our eyes don't we i mean oh, you yeah. know this is where um feminism and sexism comes into play we objectify using our eyes that's right but that's if right. we and we stop listening we stop hearing we categorize right we do all sorts of things so so the ways that we kind of mentally process kind of the emphasis on mental consciousness over embodied over spiritual over over storytelling right so there's a there's definitely an objectification that's happening through the both of the eyes right (laughs) the the me egocentric approach and also and the vision centric but um at the same time it's interesting right so i mean that that kind of that notion of you you separate you dominate right so so how how do we reintegrate Right. How do we reimagine what a human is and who we are as individuals? And how do we consciously do that all the time? And traditional ways or indigenous ways of knowing had very, I mean, of course, varied. And, you know, all of us originally came from indigenous roots and it was all over the world, right, where we were emplaced peoples. And there are many very strong, enduring indigenous peoples with strong, enduring knowledge systems. So... And, and these knowledge systems, one thing that they did have in common, if they survived or, you know, many didn't survive because of colonialism, but if they survived on their own was that they understood themselves as not separate from country or environment or place. And I've often thought that we are at the brink of a major kind of species-wide evolutionary step to circle there again. Right. Is that we that if we're going to survive and if we're going to thrive, we have to very consciously reintegrate and and get off of this, get out of this fallacy that we've been living, which is extraordinarily destructive. From Chapter Two, Ecocultural Identity Boundary Patrol and Transgression. After heavy rains in the United States Pacific Northwest, 
Millions of earthworms squeeze up through city sidewalk cracks. It's sought there taking advantage of the momentarily wet surfaces to move across distances that otherwise are relatively vast or unnavigable as they stretch and flatten their bodies in shiny lines across the concrete. Most passerby step on them without notice or care. After one such heavy rain, a student and I contemplated our walks home after class. She brought up the earthworms, saying that on these rainy days, it took her hours to get home. She would stop to kneel to gently remove worms, one by one, from harm's way. Whenever someone walked by, she added, she pretended she was tying her shoe. This student, brave and upfront in her sociocultural identities, is a firefighter and butch lesbian, confronted and broke occupational, gender, and sexuality norms every day. Nonetheless, during these worm-saving moments, confronting and transgressing anthropocentric norms, including normative notions of earthworms being lowly and unworthy of one's attention or care, felt comparatively insurmountable. She consciously masked her ecocentric identity and her feelings for another species, hiding her actions away every time another human was present. Metzner, 1995, names the wider cultural framework for such experiences in psychological terms as dissociative alienation, a feature of Enlightenment-informed cultures for centuries, built into westernized political, economic, and educational institutions. It is not that Western people lack earthly care and connection. There are long histories of ecocentric thought and care, paralleling and contrasting the rise of industrialism through contemporary times of late capitalism, but rather that westernized cultures themselves, broadly defined, have become overwhelmingly dissociated from their ecological foundations and earthly relations. Your student didn't feel... She felt comfortable being a worm rescuer. In fact, she felt compelled to be a worm rescuer, but she didn't feel confident that doing so was okay in her world. Right, it was accepted. It was ex- wasn't, you right. know, it wasn't really accepted despite being a social outlier in so many other ways for herself. This was a bridge too far. She still took action. So how did she speak about it to you? I, I don't know if this is an excerpt right, but the idea that she she just would mask her behavior if anyone walked by, right? That she just pretend she was tying her shoe. And actually that conversation, really brief conversation, mixed with a lot of observations I've been making in my own research in various sites around the world, was the seed for this entire handbook. It was that rainy day. And, and that, that student who I, you know, just was such a brave person in general in her um, expressions of her identities. Um, and this was the spot she couldn't be brave in, right? The being ecocentric instead of anthropocentric, you know, the, the understanding yourself as an ecocultural being, seeing yourself as responsible to more than just you or your species. And it just, it was so profound and so con- literally concrete, you know, like right, right there that, um, that I just started taking lots and lots of notes from that point on. And that was years ago. I've just continued to gather and gather as I hear myself, others, continue to what I what I describe as discipline ourselves why do we feel guilty and strange about helping creatures out that dissociative alienation 
I wonder if you feel there's a cultural slant to this because I've got to tell you I am that person and I have always done that and also never been ashamed (laughs) never been ashamed you know to hell with it um I you mean if if it's more North American than Australian Mm. uh I would say no from what I've seen living in Australia so far I mean I think I think some of us like that's our that's our core like that's our mission and we're going to do it and we're not going to apologize right um but I think that overarchingly, it's not easy to go counter to one's culture. And the, the messages, I mean, at, at childhood, we get a little break. You know, we're told that we should love animals and that animals speak and have, you know, feelings and spirits. But then that's over, right? I mean, we could, there are exceptions to the rule, right? Our pets, right? Those species we have domesticated. Um, and we have power over. That's right. And so, when, but when it comes to what we consider the wild, which is, you know, a system of relationships, we not only don't have in, in the dominant ways of being, we don't have an understanding of how to behave in a right way, in a good way, but we're kind of told that that's below, uh, we don't need to pay attention to that. That's just below us. We get messages like this throughout our lives, and it's very difficult to, especially when we don't have a, a word for what's going on, right? I mean, we have we have words now for sexism, we have words for racism, for colonialism. We, you know, we have words for fat shaming. We have words for ageism. We have words for the standard beauty ideal, right? We have all these terms now for rape, right? We have terms now that that say this is what this is and this is a problem, but we do not yet have in our language in a commonly used way, a way to understand human exceptionalism, a way to understand anthropocentrism. But we we certainly understand that we have a big problem, right? We certainly understand that we are destroying our mother, we are destroying our planet, we're destroying ourselves. It goes back to that moment of shift, right? Is it's a moment when we need to start to center some terminology, some core premises, some core ways of understanding that we can exchange easily with each other it's just one of the ways, right, that we need to realign what we're doing, that we need to get on the right path. I mean, we're doing that structurally with a change of government in the United States, for instance, right? We're seeing a huge shift in terms of centering climate. And, and we can see that in international agreements and more local level government agreements here in Australia. But it also has to be in the everyday. It can't just be in the way that we make policy. It has to be in how we live and breathe and interact with one another and ourselves and, and the wider world. We need a word. Ecophobic. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Mm. I love that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put it in my PhD. That's right. <laughs> um, You're going to put it in a podcast. Put it in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this next reading is from Chapter 1. Interbreathing Ecocultural Identity in the Humilocene. And it's a Q&A with the renowned cultural ecologist and geophilosopher David Abram, who's quite something to read. It's a longish quote, so we might not read all of it, but it is a nuanced, game-changing argument, as you say, and it does take a little time to clearly spell out, to push back against the adoption of the term Anthropocene, because it's it's kind of meta. If humans choose to name this period where we really need to flex and have flux after themselves, then we're kind of doing it again. We're colonising and grabbing and pissing all over everything in order to call it ours. All ours. There can be no other if we name an entire era after ourselves right. 
So over to Mark for a bit of a reading. The huge problem brought by the discourse of the Anthropocene, that the human is now coextensive with earthly reality, such that there is no outside, there is nothing that exceeds the Anthropos, is that such discourse forecloses any move towards humility. It interrupts or really undermines any gesture of humility in the face of a more-than-human earth. Whereas it does seem to me that our most proper and necessary response for us today as humans is that we slowly drink a tall glass of humility, swallowing it down and allowing it to enter our bloodstream, recognizing the extremity and the extent of the damage we have wrought and are wreaking upon the rest of this biosphere, it seems to me that we must begin to recognize the beauty, the wonder, the multiplicitous elegance of our world and its outrageous otherness, and step back from having such a huge and immense footprint everywhere we tread. But of course the very term Anthropocene precludes such a turn towards restraint. It rather names ourselves, the Anthropos, as those who must now take the reins of this world. It's up to us to manage the Earth now, even engineering it to best suit our purposes, or perhaps for the benefit of all things, if we can do so. We are the ones who have to steer this boat now. It's like the old storekeeper's admonition. You broke it, you own it. So we must now consider ourselves the masters and controllers of the biosphere. It seems to me that that is what is implied, or at least that that's the implication that most persons will necessarily draw from this name, the Anthropocene. Indeed, there are already many persons who are taking the phrase in this manner as an aspirational term, a phrase that celebrates our human ascendance over every part of nature, even if that was not the original intent of those who coined the term. But natural scientists, including Eugene Stormer and Paul Crutzen, the biologist and atmospheric chemist who coined the term, are not always especially attentive to the poetics of their craft. They are not always attentive to metaphoric resonances. They are not as attentive as others might be to all of the consequences latent in a particular term they might choose. So I think we, all of us, as citizens, as scientists and non-scientists, as poets and as philosophers, have to always be trying to do that work, pondering the epistemological and ethical consequences of the terms that we use and taking care to avoid terminology that's inherently problematic or dangerous or destructive. Many people have come up with alternative names for the Anthropocene. The Capitalocene, for instance, by those who want to say, look, it's not humans per se, it's just humans beholden to the imperative of the capitalist economy that have created this mess. And many, many other alternatives have been put forward. But our scientists, sisters and brothers, our geologists and planetary biologists and Earth system scientists have been saying, yeah, yeah, but look, there's a basic reality that we need to face, which is the centrality of our species in its entirety in this planet-wide transformation that is underway. And that's why anthropos need to be emphasized. To which I reply, look, if we want to name our species as central to this new epoch, if it's really the activity of humankind as a whole that is bringing about this new planetary regime, then listen, comrades, Instead of the term Anthropos and the implicit arrogance of the term Anthropocene, why not work with this other ancient word for our species? 
the human, and its rich and earthly etymology. After all, the word human is closely cognate with the word humility, since both are derived from humus, which names the earth underfoot, the soil. As soon as we notice the humble, earthly ancestor of the word human, then another possible name for this new geological epoch immediately suggests itself. So, Tema, I want to break it down a bit and talk about what the reading covers, because it's quite dense and hopefully people can access it online. But like Abraham says, Anthropocene encapsulates that old shopkeeper idea of you broke it, you fix it, right? And I think we all feel a bit like that. We're ready, a lot of us are ready to fix it. But still, the name Anthropocene, why doesn't it work? I mean, I hope everyone will get to read this chapter. It's the first time that that David's introduced this concept. It was the second seed for the book. I had the ideas in my mind and, and things that had come with my own research. And then I, I know David, he's from New Mexico, where I'm also from. And he and I had this conversation. He brought up this term and I got really excited. Let's go to the term in a minute, but let's start with the problem of Anthropocene. Yes. Let's cause a little yes. bit of right. um, anticipation in our <laughs> listeners. We've got a new term. It's a All good right. one. All right. <laughs> so, um, I mean, Anthropocene has already been problematized, right? And we could talk about how it has been. But, I mean, so Anthropocene, at first, it's like, yeah, that's what's happening. You know, we've taken over. And you could see that geologically and... And, and it is really important in terms of drawing attention to human impact. There are multiple problems, however, when you start looking at this term more deeply. And one of, one of the problems that, that I have thought about over the years is, oh, there's no way out, right? And there's no ethics engaged with Anthropocene. It just simply is stamp this is the Anthropocene. So you can read it in many different ways. You can have a response that's, oh, I have, I have responsibility here. And how I am an anthro, how I am a human, needs to be about how I'm behaving and make a lot of changes. Or you can just say, yeah, it's Anthropocene. Live with it, right? Or die with it. <laughs> and then there's other ways of, um, you know, people have, have pointed out um, that actually it's not all people who have done this, right? And it's, it's, it's not just part of the world, but it's also a particular way of doing things that has created the Anthropocene, right? It's an extractive, what we call today a neoliberal, free market approach to just extreme extraction, extreme waste, extreme overconsumption, uh, a huge focus on production, right? And getting away from balance, and really being able to understand what our impacts are. And so that term, the capitalocene, came out of that critique. And there's been other critiques as well, um, in, including that bring in um, histories of colonialism, understandings of really ripping apart of various species from each other. So there's been lots of problematizing of the term. But what, what, I, what I was excited about with what David was thinking about with the, dun, 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 the term humilocene um, was that he, he is, he's a language smith. He, he really cares about the ways that we tell our stories because he sees the power and, and the mythic in that, right? That language is a symbolic force. And so in looking at this new idea that he brings forth in this chapter in the book of the humilocene, we're looking at 
many things all at once. And what spoke to me immediately about it was, ah, this has an ethics wrapped up in it, right? It is, how should we see ourselves as a species, as humans? What does it mean to understand that that same root of that word, a human, is also soil, also has ties to humility. Yeah. So human, humus. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Not hummus. Not hummus. Humus. <laughs> exactly. And 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 what does it mean that um, that that directional aspect of this term was? <laughs> I just got bonked right in the, on nose, the nose by a moth. I think or a butterfly. <laughs> I couldn't see it as fast. Be humble is what that creature was saying to this creature. Exactly. So. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a moment to take a breath and to reassess who we are and to make very conscious decisions. And what he brings into this as well is this ongoing conversation about this era being also considered the, uh, the humbling, an era of humbling. He gets into it better than I, but I thought that starting out this handbook with that concept as an organizing principle was going to be really important when we start to think about every single human experience being not just a cultural but also an ecological and the two being inextricable from one another. So Humilocene gives a nod to Anthropocene because Humilocene has human at the mm-hmm. centre of it too. Mm-hmm. It also has humility. Mm-hmm. It also implies humiliated as yes. as we well should be. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's right. And humus of the earth Mm. so it really as you say it's a wordsmith's term that gives options for the future doesn't it it reminds us i mean and i say that into you know that one word and two words right it reminds us it wakes up our minds again Mm. right and and helps us understand that how we think and pay attention to how we think yeah, it matters. And, and again, I, I mean that in both senses of the term, right? It matters. It comes into matter. It's a material thing, how we think. It has material implications. It has material impacts. The point is that the term the Anthropocene was coined by some natural scientists, and that's great. But perhaps if they'd worked more closely with those who think about the meanings of words and the way we live... Essentially, we kind of have to heal the mind-body split. We have to heal the urge to silo and divide. And at the end of the book, you and Jose urge scholars and activists and, well, everybody really, to think across disciplines, which is about link building. And disciplines can be academic disciplines, but they can also be instrumental disciplines. We now see in local councils around Australia engineers working more closely with people who are thinking about the way our culture and our society works in order to bring about physical change in our in our local government areas which are more embracing of for example water sensitive communities and water sensitive urban design okay is about engineers working with ecologists to do things a little differently so working across disciplines appears to be the way to go and it's certainly what you guys are calling for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so first of all, in doing this book, we worked with people from maybe a dozen disciplines. Yeah. So you exemplified a way forward. That's right. And and also, it was not easy, right? Because um, A, we're com- we really are coming up with a completely new concept, right? This is, this is a completely new way of understanding identity but also who we are and how we how we are and who we could be and many of these people we never actually met in person 
right? So it was back and forth, back and forth through their writing, through their ideas and with our ideas is coming to a place of really understanding one another and understanding where we were trying to go. And in many ways to me, this mirrored what our big hopes for this handbook, which is that, and I think that this is happening in many ways around the world already, that there's this kind of recuperative across the aisle interaction that's starting to happen, whether it's um, with siloed disciplines or practices in the world, you know, like you said, like people who are doing the, the land moving with the people who are doing the designing with the people who are doing living there, that more integrated way of thinking things through and having, sh- it, it kind of gets back to the shared language again, right? Is do we have, whether it's ecophobic, don't be ecophobic, man, or whether it's, um, you know, the positive, you know, let's, let's like have ecocentric design here or ecocentric policy um, or ecocentric mission statement or goals. Another thing that we did in this handbook, in addition to working across many different disciplines and, and to kind of erasing those lines and doing so, hopefully, at least in this instance, is we also worked internationally. So we really wanted to have every continent represented. So doing that and, and working with scholars in India who were working with you know, river rescue and river protectors or with people who are doing work in, the, in Antarctica or um, you know, up in Sweden, or um, down in Mexico with campesino farmers, peasant farmers, trying to also look at many different contexts and ways of seeing and ways of living was extraordinarily important to us. We hope that we've exemplified that, and it, was, you know, it took us a, a couple years to really do this in a way that we felt like was ready for public consumption and was ready for people to then take on and move forward in their various realms of practice, whether it's in academia or in activism or in politics or in design. I mean, there's so many different ways these ideas can be put to practice and brought to life. I think that's a beautiful place to end it. Tema Milstein, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the Routledge Handbook of Ecocultural Identity, which you edited with Jose Castro Sotomayor. It's just a fantastic object. You must be very proud. Well done. Thank you, Gretchen. And this is so fun to do with you. Thank you for doing it. (laughs) Now I'll just get a bit more Atmos. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.